As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you remember what we were doing this time last year? Uh, nope, not really. I should say around this time last year. Um, okay. But yes, I, I can't really even remember last week at this point. But in the middle of January, we recorded an episode on the discount yeah. window. Yeah. Oh, on the discount window. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Why were we talking about the discount window? Just because, for the fun of it? No, because borrowing was going up. Right. It's, yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. So in like February or something, or maybe early January. March of last year. No, no. February, early March of last year, like we did that episode about like deposit rates, and then that turned out to be very relevant. But even before that, you started writing about the rise in discount window borrowing. Yes, that's right. I think I wrote something in December. I think the headline yeah. was like billions in discount window borrowing suggests all is not well with banks, which turned out to be fairly uh, true come March because we did see a mini banking crisis, banking drama, whatever you want to call it, the uh, collapse of three banks, including Silicon Valley Bank. But since then, there has been this massive discussion about how to tweak all these emergency financing programs for banks, what they should actually look like, how do we want the lender of last resort system to operate, and what does it mean for banks, you know, if they have to hold back additional collateral in order to access these programs, then what does it mean for them from, you know, a capital or a revenue standpoint? So many things going on in this space right now. It's a little bit under the radar, Mm -hmm. but I think we should talk about it. Totally. It always is like there's like this inherent challenge, right? And even with Silicon Valley Bank, even setting aside like emergency borrowing, you know, the thing I guess like that people get anxious about is as soon as any financial institution makes moves to shore up liquidity, shore up finances, et cetera, that becomes a signal, right? To mm-hmm. investors or depositors, whoever it's like, oh, wait, why do they feel the need to shore up their finances? And then you become a target and you start worrying about the share price and equity, et cetera. And it feels like this is like an inherent challenge for regulators, which is, of course, you want banks to be proactive. You want banks to have plenty of liquidity. You want them to have equity cushions. But if the act of doing so invites suspicions, 
then how do you get out of that puzzle? Well, exactly. And I think this is most apparent with the discount window where people talk about the stigma of accessing the discount window. And, you know, when you access it, it's supposed to be anonymous. The Fed doesn't publish who's actually tapping it until I think two years later. But you start to see rumors swirl. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the case of last year, when we saw the discount window borrowing start to go up in December, I think that was the proximate time when people started to ask questions about like, well, wait a second, what's going on with Signature? What's going on with Silicon Valley Bank? That might have contributed to some of the deposit withdrawals that we eventually saw. So the super interesting thing now is that people are talking about reforming the discount window as well as some other facilities. We saw the acting comptroller of the currency, Michael Sue, also a former Oblots guest, talk about the idea of like, well, maybe we're going to require banks to tap the Mm. discount window every once in a while, just so the stigma maybe reduces, but also they have the operational readiness to do it when they really need to. Can I say something? It's almost inappropriate for... No, it's it's borderline. (laughs) How are you going to make the discount window inappropriate? I'm curious So you know what I think whenever, like, I hear this idea of, like, well, if you just get everyone to do it, there's no no stigma. Oh, I know exactly what you're going to (laughs) say. I tweeted this once. I always think about the scene in the uh, movie Billy Madison where, like, the kid is really embarrassed because everyone can see that he uh, peed his pants. And so, wait, who's that actor who's in that? that the comedian? Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. is like, oh, he, like, splashes a bunch of water on his own pants. And so he's like, oh, everyone and everyone around has water on their own pants. There's nothing embarrassing about it. And in my mind, that's... I'm sorry, maybe I have a juvenile humor. That is always where my mind goes. If you have everyone do it, no one can be embarrassed about doing it. Okay, well, on today's episode, (laughs) why requiring banks to tap the discount window is the equivalent of splashing your pants with water. Um, (laughs) That's going to be the title of this episode. Excellent. Well, we really do have the perfect guest. It's someone we've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time, and I I don't think he's been on before, though. Um, We're going to be speaking with Stephen Kelly, Associate Director of Research at the Yale Program on Financial Stability. So, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Happy to be here and talk about Billy Madison. (laughs) (laughs) So how much did the banking drama Mm. of last year change attitudes towards emergency lending facilities? I guess another way of asking the question is, do we think that all these lender of last resort type things actually stood up to the test last year? Yeah. So it's a tricky question because obviously what comes after these crises is you go, well, why didn't it work? Right. It's there. The Fed can mint money. Why doesn't it work? You know, why didn't SVB just post everything at the window? And, And we can get into the various reasons about that. But basically, it's hopeless to say, oh, the discount window is going to work once you have a name that's in the headlines. And that's sort of the pressure we put on it sometimes. What the discount window is great for is sort of a macro story. It's great for contagion. It's great for maybe a community bank that isn't facing the same kind of headline risks. It's never going to save that bank that's in the headlines. And we can go into all the reasons about why, but the, the so much of the franchise value just gets destroyed so fast. And when you're talking about replacing all your depositors, well, what is a bank but you know a collection of its depositors? So it, you know you can put all the money you want in the window, but it's never going to save that bank, and that's just too much pressure on the window. Can good banks fail by 
taking on these counter signals to the market. So whether it's going to the Fed and trying to get additional liquidity, whether it's doing an equity sale at some point just to create that greater equity cushion, if the bank is fundamentally sound, can simply expressing concern be enough to bring it down? Because it does seem like you know people don't want to send that signals. Or ultimately, if the bank is good, then these are good moves to take and they'll survive it. Yeah, the biggest thing is if you can't get capital. I mean, capital is what protects the deposit layer of the balance sheet. So if you can't get capital as a bank, you know, you're out of business. So SVB comes out March 8th last year with an 8K that says, oh, you know, we were kind of looking at raising 2.25 billion. We have 500 million of commitment. Like that was enough to say, okay, they gave an inside look at the balance sheet and nobody wanted it. So it wasn't that they were raising capital. It was that they announced that there was this gap. Yeah. If they had come out on March 8th and said Warren Buffett is investing $2.5 we would still have SVB today. Got it. Maybe this is a good place to sort of back up and dive Mm. into what exactly happened with SVB. So there seems to have been a reluctance or an inability to tap the discount window uh, soon enough. But we also know in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, that they were tapping another emergency. Well, Oh, I should be careful here. It's not really supposed to be an emergency lending facility. Um, I'm talking about the FHLBs, the federal home loan banks. We used to call these, by the way. We used to joke in like 2009 that FHLB stood for free hubris loans for banks <laughs> or find huge lumps of bucks. I like <laughs> I love find huge lumps of bucks. But anyway, I mean, this is a facility. It was supposed to facilitate home ownership and help banks do mortgages for people, but it sort of transformed to become an alternate emergency lending facility. And we should definitely talk about why. But SVB was basically tapping that instead of the discount window. So walk us through like what we saw from that particular bank in terms of the choices they made to access different types of liquidity. Yeah. So we call the FHLBs the flubs, which they don't love, (laughs) um, but we'll do it anyways. So I think it's not unique to SVB that they sort of relied on the FHLBs. You know, there was an SNL sketch after uh, 2008 during the original stress test where they they sort of did a bit like the stress test was an actual exam that banks had to take. And, you know, Citigroup kept answering government bailout to all the questions. And, and that's <laughs> I never saw that. Yeah, I don't remember this either. That's sort of what happened with the FHLBs, particularly prior to March and prior to, you know, the supervisory pressure we've seen since where if you ask the bank, hey, what do you do if you really get pinched? They go, well, we'll go to the flub. You know, we have a great relationship with the FHLBs. I mean, that's another piece is that these FHLBs are a lot more commercial in nature than the Fed. But so that was sort of the contingency funding plan writ large across the system. And, you know, it sort of works if you need a billion or five billion. If you're SVB, it doesn't work if you need 40 billion because the FHLBs, they take government collateral, they take mortgage collateral. If you need to start posting, you know, commercial and industrial loans, something like that, corporate bonds, you got to go to the Fed. And if you're not set up at the Fed because it's annoying to do that, it's too expensive, you don't want to leave collateral there, whatever the reason, you run out of time. So some banks just aren't set up with the Fed, like it's too annoying? Exactly. What is That's that? the operational readiness oh. argument for making them splash water on oh. their pants slash go to the discount window. Right. So huh. SVB literally couldn't get collateral to the Fed in time before the run is out. Again, the SVB story was over, so it didn't matter. But it's useful to be ready to go at the Fed because 
they can take effectively your whole balance sheet. Basically, any asset a bank will have, you can put to the window. I mean, that's why it exists. And the FHLBs, you know, hmm. because of this sort of housing origin and whatever other reasons, they just don't have that range. The same thing happened at Signature, by the way. And I think there was a really good speech by a Fed official. I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about how it had basically been five years since Signature tapped the discount window. And when it came time to tap again, you know, things are blowing up, you need to access emergency liquidity. The signature staff didn't really understand the rules around collateral eligibility and what they had to do in order to actually go to the window and borrow money. So I can see the argument for why you would want people to like practice it. Hey, what happened to signature? Who took over their assets again? I'm making a bit of a, uh, a joke there that I mean, I'm aware that I'll have to check my Bloomberg. I don't. I, I think there's some sleepy bank no one's ever heard of. Yeah, NYCB. Okay, so no, this really. I mean, that sort of blew my mind at the time. That like here are these like institutions, and I guess that weekend, obviously, I guess the Fed or the Treasury determined that there was some sort of emergency aspect of it, and there was we all know that like there was this sort of rescue, and they opened up this new uh, program, the BTFP, which we'll talk about. But it sort of blew my mind that you could have this crisis, and part of it is like, well, what time is it? What time is like the window actually open? Can we reopen the window? Like That sort of blew my mind. So what happened immediately, or maybe not immediately, but in the wake of all of this? We've sort of talked about the run-up and how they were like, what changes did we see regulatory-wise in the wake of the SVB and Signature uh, disaster? So the biggest change, which is long overdue, is you got to post more collateral at the window. It's this term pre-positioning that we're starting to hear more and more of. And, you know, you got to practice. And we're hearing more from regulators that they would like a little more practice in this, you know, and this is probably the direction that supervision needs to go of like, hey, if you're not practicing, we're going to mm. we're going to dock you. If you can't show that you can show up at the window and get liquidity when you need it, we're going to dock you from a supervisory perspective. But really, it's been a lot of pressure to send more collateral to the Fed. There is something like three trillion dollars of collateral at the Fed. We don't get like daily updates on this, but it's in that vicinity and we know it's been growing. And we're also hearing from regulators that there's maybe some reforms to be had and, and some new liquidity measures to take. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
Is prepositioning a synonym basically for encumbrance? So the idea that I have a certain number of assets on my balance sheet, I'm going to have to use more of those or set more of those aside at the central bank in order to satisfy these new requirements. And therefore, they're going to be less available to me to do stuff, do you know, creative and hopefully revenue generating things with them, like repo them out or something like that. So, yes, that's that's part of the story. And the other thing to think about is like banks have a lot of loans. So th- those are just sitting there. If you move those to the Fed, you do, you get over the hurdles of moving them. Like it's not like you're repoing out your loans necessarily right. as a community bank. Just house them at the Fed. Don't leave them at the FHLBs. <laughs> Send them to the Fed. And so that's going to be a, a piece of it. The other thing that may come here is some sort of carrot with that stick. So the hardest thing about the discount window is that it really can't be any cheaper. And that's the stigma is that it's really expensive. So if you have a deposit, which is yielding zero, and you've got to go to the window, the Fed can say, oh, look, it's just the top of the Fed funds rate. But that's still, you know, right now it's 500 bips more than more than deposit. Oh, I see. So Uh, even if it's just like you're just you're just borrowing, even if it's just at the Fed funds rates. Yeah. Like really banks are borrowing from their depositors. That's way more or, you know, whatever it is now, it's not zero anymore, but whatever the typical deposit is. Right. So it's it's incredibly expensive. Ah, It would be great if you were Coca-Cola and you could go to the discount window, but you can't. So the way to destigmatize is to offer some sort of carrot. And if you can say, hey, if you preposition collateral, we'll give you some credit towards your LCR or we'll give you some credit towards these other things so you can self-insure less and do more profitable things with your balance sheet. That's maybe a viable route, and that's why prepositioning is sort of coming in vogue. Wait, can you talk a little bit more about the rates available at, I guess, specifically the discount window versus the FHLBs? Mm. Because this is something I never like quite understood. So if you go to the FHLB, the FLUB, I think they actually like they do something where they do look at unrealized gains and losses on your securities in order to see whether or not you're a viable entity to be lending money to. So if you are like super stressed, they might not actually lend you money. But on the other hand, it seems like everyone kept going to them. And I'm assuming it's because like the rate of borrowing is more attractive than the discount rate. Yeah, so that's a big piece of it. And it's the confidentiality. So the valuation thing you're thinking of is only unavailable for sale. So that's part of the story is you can still hide the losses and held to maturity to some degree. But the the pricing is definitely advantageous. And nobody can write that story that you wrote last February, Tracy, where, you, where you're saying, OK, it looks like there's... Uh, uh, um, December, please. <laughs> Sorry. Give me my extra two months. I think you told these banks to borrow so you could write the story. <laughs> you know, n- nobody can write that story because the data is not... It's not public data. We don't get a weekly balance sheet like why, we get from the Fed. Why isn't it public? Because you don't want to run on the bank. Because the FHLBs are a private entity. They're cooperative, basically, put together by the banks. Oh. And so that's a piece of the stigma. And the, the funding is really good because this is, you know, it's a GSE. It's a government-sponsored enterprise. So when you have a crisis and there's a flight into money market, government money market funds, what can they buy? They can buy treasuries and they can buy FHLB debt. And so you, you really have, you have cheap issuance and the FHLB pays out their earnings to members. They don't pay it out based on, you know, the biggest bank gets the biggest or, you know, everybody gets an equal share. Whoever borrows is who gets the earnings back. So it's it's literally a, you know a rebate huh. to anybody who borrows. And so what we see is the FHLBs are always competitive with the Fed, often cheaper. And, and you know that drives part of the story too is that they they just have this built-in discount. 
So one other thing that's happened recently is the Fed has basically said they're going to end the Mm. BTFP program, I think in March, which was when it was supposed to end. And I was kind of amazed at some of the arbitrage story that came out a little while ago, the idea that banks could basically get free money from the Fed because of the way the rates were set on the BTFP versus other financing sources. How big of an issue was that? How much did that play into the decision to end it. And then I guess lastly, given what we're seeing now with one particular New York based bank and the troubles there, is there a possibility that the BTFP gets extended? So I would say it's unlikely absent a a wider crisis. The arbitrage story isn't really it's not likely that that's why it was ended. It was ended because things, you know, NYCB notwithstanding, things have been calmer. There's not really the unusual and exigent circumstances the Fed looks for. I think it's probably why we found out in January that it was going to end in March and why they announced the rate change. Yeah. So the way the rate thing worked is the BTFP is for one year. The Fed charged one year OIS plus 10 basis points. So that was sort of the penalty built in. But what what they're lending is reserves. And if you're a bank, you can leave those reserves at the Fed, not do anything with them and earn interest on reserves. So this is sort of a new post 2008 thing that actually weighs into the, the expenses of the Fed. So when OIS plus 10 bips drops below IOR, you know, you could just run that trade infinitely as long as you have the collateral and and just sort of harvest the carry, basically. Just for listeners and for myself, remind me again. So what exactly the BTFP stipulated? It was rolled out as part of the SVB emergency. I get, you know, there were all these concerns about all these losses on the hold to market book. But uh, remind me what the actual design of that program was. So the biggest thing about the BTFP is that it took collateral at par value. Um, right, par. And so there was a lot a lot of these treasuries, in particular in SVB cases, were like way off par because rates had shot up. Right. And so the, the critique at the time was, oh, my gosh, this is not how central banking works. You can't just lend it whatever value, blah, blah, blah. And that was pretty overblown because the BTFP still charges a market rate. So just like we were talking about before, they're not charging the deposit rate. They're charging 500 bips at the time. So all it did was term out a bank's losses because, you know, a mark to market loss on a held to maturity security from interest rates is representative of your funding cost over time to hold that security. Banks typically don't pay that actual rate, right? If they're if they're paying cheaper deposits. And that's why we ignore the accounting. But once you take that security to the Fed, if you take a 30 year treasury to the Fed for 30 years, just keep rolling that discount window alone, you're going to pay the market rate. And so those losses are you're going to realize them over time. So it solved the liquidity problem, but it didn't ignore these losses. Banks still had to deal with them. You just alluded to something that I wanted to ask you. This is sort of a provocative question. I know it's going to get you going, but (laughs) liquidity versus solvency. That's not even a question. That's just a statement. What's the difference? Does it matter? So this is a common versus framing for basically synonyms in banking. Like every time a bank fails... It's either one political party. It's definitely the executive who ran the bank. We just had a liquidity problem. We just needed more liquidity from the Fed. People freaked out. The question they can't answer is why your bank, right? We don't have a panic that takes down JP Morgan, right? The idea that something can be a liquidity issue alone, it doesn't exist. These banks aren't chosen at random. And every bank at the very end looks like a liquidity issue because the last thing they do is either fail to make a payment or look like they're about to fail to make a payment and the regulators show up. Well, can you have like a pure self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, couldn't someone start a false 
rumor or misunderstand social media. And I remember in the wake of SVB is like, oh, social media caused the bank run or all of these people on this ski trip in uh, Aspen, I think was like one of the stories, like they were all like WhatsApping with each other. And that's what caused the bank run. Like, could that, is that a real thing? Like where like a bank could go down? You say like, well, yeah, but why are they targeting you? But maybe everyone just on the WhatsApp group says this is the bank that's in trouble. They could, but we just don't see that as really happening. You know, SVB was running on negative accounting equity for months yeah. and investors had discounted it. And it's not just the SVB case. Like there has yet to be a case study where Twitter can come out or, you know, Bill Ackman can just like take down Goldman Sachs because it goes back to what we were saying about Warren Buffett or the capital raise. If the franchise oh, yeah. is strong and you have if you have contingent capital, you don't have to worry. If you don't have contingent capital, the capital structure breaks down. This is the thing, Tracy, that I still like to this day, I don't quite understand, which is that, you know, there was no question that they were running like negative equity and it was right there in like probably the 10Q or like some SEC filing. But, you know, like all of these startups, like supposedly love the bank, they targeted, it, they understood, they had like these special products so that founders could get mortgages by posting their RSUs as collateral, which other banks didn't. Like, I don't understand why they couldn't have monetized that franchise value, which now seems to be gone. So they did for so long. I mean, that's how they could afford running at, at, at negative accounting equity. It's like Amazon, right? How long did they take to turn a profit? But you had long-term mm. viability. And the, the thing with SVB is like, okay, you can have the mostest loyalist depositors in the world, like every bank thinks they have, and SVB probably did. But what, what happened, you know, what Tracy was observing with her article and what was happening before the run is they had to spend their money. Like the deposit balance at SVB was dependent on new IPOs that just weren't happening. So the, right. these venture capitalists are, are as loyal as can be, but they're just spending down their cash balances. Right. And so the balance sheet unwinds. How much of the banking fragility that we've seen over the past year is basically an interest rate story? So, mm. you know, setting aside IPOs, which dried up when interest rates increased, you also just have the losses on the bond portfolio. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is kind of, it's kind of a non-issue, but it's also kind of a fundamental tension in the banking system, which is that you've built all the rules around the idea that like the best type of collateral is either cash or government bonds, mm -hmm. which is fine when government bonds are really boring and not very volatile and there's not a lot happening. But when inflation starts to go up and the primary tool the central bank has to manage that is to affect the price of bonds, then we seem to have this like tension enter the system. For sure. And that's how you end up with the BTFP, which you know, sort of fits in this long trend, particularly at the Fed, of like, what is a treasury and how much do we want to monetize it? Like, how often do we want to be intervening? How, you know, what different lending facilities do we have to set up? Who do we let? So it does sort of sit within that post-2008 tension of like, you know, we're, we're really building the system on top of these safe assets and we kind of have to keep them money-like. But yeah, that that is the key vulnerability. But also, there's so many banks who have that same vulnerability as SVB that didn't fail. So that's sort of the built-in macro vulnerability. But the interest rate risk, you know, was also in tech and in innovation and in crypto. And so that's why we've seen like mm. banks like Schwab, banks like Bank of America, like huge unrealized losses, but less concerned about the franchise. Yeah, it seems like 
when I say non-issue, like it seems like there's a tension, but also I find it hard to believe that like the banking system is going to come down because banks have bought too many U.S. treasuries. Like that doesn't seem <laughs> right. And this doesn't seem realistic. This was always the nuclear option that the Fed had is like the second you're worried about J.P. Morgan going down because of too many treasuries, the Fed's going to cut rates and mm. just recapitalize the whole system. Uh, so it was also sitting in this tension of the Fed was tightening and didn't want to ease up on tightening. So that made it a harder dance, too. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You wrote about this a little bit at the time, and I think even like before SVB, what happens if we get into the situation in which the Fed is trying to put out a financial fire at the same time that it's trying to fight inflation, which was certainly the case in March 2023, because at that point, the hiking cycle had not yet reached its peak. And so, the, you know, they re-expanded the balance sheet. You know, some Twitter people thought that was QE or it wasn't. But like, what is like, talk to us about that tension of if the Fed, you know, it's like you mentioned, it's like, okay, let's say JP Morgan, were getting into trouble. But, you know, that could happen at a time of high inflation. And as Tracy mentioned, you, it could happen at some bank through the treasury channel. It literally did. How do uh, central bankers think about this tension or how do you resolve that? Well, central bankers might not. I mean, at the mm. absolute limit, this is why crisis interventions are, you know, capital injections and guarantees and and fiscal, you know, it's sort of all these things at once and why the discount, again, going back to the discount window, why it's not always enough and why it doesn't solve every crisis. But that's exactly why you see, have to see, you know, quote unquote, innovative things like valuing collateral at par. And the BTFP and the arbitrage and, and sort of the terming out losses is a little unique because all the losses really built up just in treasuries at the time. You know, if you're thinking about something like, commercial real estate to mm -hmm. pick a random asset class, the the credit risk is endogenous to the Fed, right? So it's not it's not a case where the losses necessarily materialize over time. The Fed can can come along and, and write, you know, basically a put option on credit risk in a way that even valuing collateral at par, it sort of couldn't with the BTFP. So I mentioned at the beginning that we are seeing various attempts to tweak and mm. in some cases like change significantly the way these various facilities are used. If you were Michael Sue at the OCC or if you were Michael Barr, the vice chair of supervision at the Fed, if you were like the ultimate Michael, basically, <laughs> how would you be arranging this constellation of facilities? 
Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, one, the, the, we can talk about the standing repo facility, but uh, I might pop a blood vessel if we do that. Um, <laughs> I want to see that. Okay. Talk to, no, no, we'll get to that. The biggest thing is you have to have some carrot at the window because the Fed, so it used to be even in recent history that there was a premium to go to this kind of window, right? You want banks to like be evaluated by the market when they're getting funding and you don't want like haircuts at the discount window being your effective collateral requirements. So like there is a reason to not run everything out of the Fed, right? They're not asset managers. But at the same time, you you have this tension where you want them to come when the time is right. And so you have to have some incentive for the banks to go because the, the, the Fed can't go any lower on price. It used to be 100 basis point premium. We've seen the Fed lower this in crisis. They lowered it to zero over Fed funds in COVID, and it's been there since. So it's clear that they are keeping it, you know, they're keeping the discount window rate at top of Fed funds. So they really can't go any lower because then, you know, we're in the BTFP problem where they're they're taking in less than, than, than you can pay on interest on reserves. So you have to have some regulatory carrot and stick, basically, for the discount window. So that's a big piece. Second thing is, get the FHLBs out of the lender of last resort game. We sort of got a unique political moment in that the FHFA put out a report a few months back kind of saying this thing, right? Like, you know, my sense is Sandra Thompson, the head of the FHFA, cares about affordable housing, right? She doesn't want to be in this world of like bankers just lending to each other and it goes to a trillion dollars in, in a crisis. And it's just sort of so far from where those institutions started. It's so far from the goal of housing. Like, get them out of the lender last resort game. Don't let them pay dividends based on who borrows. Pay dividends based on who does affordable housing or something, you know, something mm. along those lines. And basically write up a bunch of term sheets for all these different potential 13-3 facilities that you're going to have to roll out. Because the other piece of this is like, going back to your rates question, Joe, all we talk about now is central bank intervention. Like, anytime a market blows up, it's where's the ECB? Where's the BOJ? Like, buy equities now, bail out this bank, like, especially since 2008. And where was all this before? It's like, well, they just cut rates. When we didn't have to worry about the zero lower bound, they just cut rates. And, you know, that was sort of the Greenspan playbook, right? Just like let some financial froth come out and then clean up the mess with rates. Uh, So that's sort of the other reason that we're talking about this more and more and more is we're worried about the zero lower bound. Talk to us about the standing repo facility. It seems like a good idea, you know, just always be there and yeah. get some Whoa, his work. head just exploded. Oh, oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. It was nice knowing you, Stephen. It's okay. Uh, um, What's the downside? It always seemed like a good idea. So me, the standing repo facility is, so first of all, it's basically the discount window for treasuries and agencies. The nice thing about it is that it adds primary dealers. You hear the Fed talk about it and they like wanna add all these banks to it, but it's just the discount window. You can bring treasuries to the discount window. Uh, So that whole piece of it of like, let's get banks involved. It would really only be valuable if you as a bank, like the depository subsidiary had collateral in the tri-party repo market. Cause the Fed runs this program out of the tri-party repo market. It's not like the discount window in that sense. So. That part's sort of goofy. It's nice to have it for the primary dealers, but there's two problems we have with it. One, and Zoltan has talked about this on this podcast at length, which is you're relying on the primary dealer's balance sheet to sort of on-lend it to everybody, you know, repurpose the liquidity for every hedge fund that that needs it in a time of crisis. And that just doesn't work because balance sheets get pinched. And then the alternative is like, okay, you let every hedge fund come directly to the Fed. And there are political and legal issues with that. The other thing is, again, it's not like it takes a matched book, uh, right? The standard repo facility is not going to take your treasury and your future. So if you look at something like the basis trade and the mm. risks we have around the basis trade, I, I take very little comfort in the standard repo facility, even though some folks do, because 
when the basis blows out, you basically have the cash price falls and the futures tighten, right? And that's that's what we saw in March 2020. And all the standard repo facility can do is replace your repo funding at that new market value. Uh, so it goes back to this issue of like, where do you value the collateral? It's not going to recognize, oh, you have a future and you have a treasury. So I'm going to lend at, you know, at the collective value of that portfolio. It's going to lend at the cash value of your dash to cash uh, yeah. treasury that everybody's trying to get rid of. And so you're just going to get caught in that spiral. What does a bank do? No, seriously, what is the main product that a bank offers? Deposits. Can you explain it? And like when I think it's like, oh, I want to go to the bank, I want a loan. If a bank offers mostly deposits, why are they all so bad at um, actually matching the benchmark interest rate? Because deposits are a service. That's exactly why. I disagree. I got nothing <laughs> this is my, from my bank. This is my this is my argument. We should be paying the bank for deposits. Oh, I love God. I love easy online banking services and free ATM withdrawals. Why aren't I paying them? Well, not only that, it's it's the ledger, Tracy. That it's the ledger of the whole economy. You cannot make a payment that isn't a deposit transfer, you know, happening somewhere at the back end. And that is a service that banks offer. And that is exactly why the franchise value can erode so quickly. Because if you say, oh, we have all the liquidity we need at the discount window because we're highly capitalized, which failed banks always have great capital ratios, right? So they can take their collateral to the window, haircut it, whatever. But you have no deposit franchise left. And the deposit franchise is what was allowing you to borrow at zero, hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and lend it at three. So that, that's your whole franchise value. I realize we've made it through this entire conversation without even touching the Basel endgame proposals. Should we do it? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, Basel. Uh, I, I mean, it's almost not worth it because it's not going to look anything like it does now. I, I mean, it, I don't even know. What does that mean? Well, there's there's a lot of places in it that look like easy fixes. You know, there's like weird charges that show up for like climate financing or like random distortions that happen in housing. So the Fed's going to look very responsive. It's going to look like it changed a lot of things. The other thing is they've sort of signaled that they want more consensus than they had putting out the proposal. And they had two dissents putting out the proposal. They had Mickey Bowman who they're never going to get. She hates everything the Fed has done on the regulatory front in the last year. And it's Chris Waller, who has really talked about the operational piece, which is a little bit distorted. So the, the proposal sort of looks at charging for operational risk based on like the size of a business. So like the size of an asset management business would cause you to need to hold you know more capital. But those businesses tend to be very stabilizing. Like, look at what we've seen that happen to Morgan Stanley. Like, it's it's a diversifying business. It's sort of a all seasons business. So, I think we'll probably see a lot of changes on the operational risk charges as well. Prior to SVB, I believe there were a lot of fights around the regulatory limits and whether stress tests about like banks that weren't the mega too big to fail banks, but weren't necessarily like the little tiny uh, community banks out in the middle of nowhere. And I think like SVB and some of these others sort of like fell in that middle and in a way like probably harmed themselves because in retrospect, they probably just would have been better off taking a little bit of hit to profitability for a sort of like tighter uh, regulatory requirement. What is happening with regulation for some of these more mid-sized banks? Well, I mean, the goal is to bring them all into, into to sort of recognize them as big banks. Mm. Which, you know, it seems, so, why, why not do that? There are like maybe legal reasons and blah, blah, blah. And, and But I'm really not convinced. But I'm also like fundamentally like if we take a step back from the capital regulation debate, like we're talking about changing ratios from like 12 percent to 13 and a half. Like I get why a bank is annoyed. I get why there's all these interest groups involved. But like from a systemic perspective, that's just not that interesting. Hmm. That's not going to be the difference between a 2008 and not. And it's also not going to be the difference between 
a profitable banking system that beats Europe and China and not. I mean, it is true that SVB had a carve out as a smaller bank, and there is discussion about whether or not those carve outs should exist. But just backing up for a second, big picture, I feel like in the U.S., we have yet to decide what we want the banking system to actually look like. So there's this sort of it's a wonderful life vision where you have all these local banks, community banks, even in New York, and they know you and they build up that relationship and, you know, you get those benefits. But on the other hand, they're also, you know, our experience of last year is that maybe there is a benefit to being extremely mm-hmm. large and efficient and having a funding advantage and things like that. And it feels to me like the regulators, politicians, basically everyone involved in this equation has yet to figure out exactly what they want. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to talk about because, you know, you can't go out as like Jay Paul and be like, I think we should have less banks because you'll have less banks okay. by Friday, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's dude, a good way to do it. It's a hard thing to talk about. And, you know, they've pushed back on this idea of like a barbell banking system, which is sort hmm. of the, the mid sized ones get hollowed out. They either downsize or upsize, and you're left with community banks and, and bigger banks. And that is sort of the verdict of 2023, as you would say, okay, big banks did well, small banks did well, let's just get rid of the mid sized banks. But, you know, there's small banks that are very dependent on the local economy. I I will say, big picture, you cannot be a niche bank that is also under the pressure of financial markets. Like, you Hmm. can't be focused on Silicon Valley and also, you know, need to raise equity and have attentive, you know, headlines. If you're a community bank, you can probably run on on negative equity longer than, than, you know, a mid-sized bank that has to go to market and things like that. All right, Stephen Kelly, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts and letting us uh, trigger you for basically 40 (laughs) minutes. I really appreciate it. That That was was great. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Thanks, guys. So, Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation. I have a feeling it's going to be a very relevant one in 2024 um, as we start to see more movement on these various issues, including, you know, maybe reforming the discount window, whatever the Basel endgame actually ends up looking like. There are a few interesting things that I would pick out there. So one of them was Stephen's emphasis of how important the actual banking franchise, the deposit franchise is to funding. And, you know, if the franchise starts to go like that's when you do get the deposit issues and then you can't actually raise capital. And I think some of that did get lost in the conversation around SVB and Signature and First Republic, where it was more like, oh, these banks kind of got unlucky, like they they bought too many bonds or, yeah. or whatever. No, that really connects some dots and crystallized a lot of things. And I had forgotten with SVB that prior to the run that did happen on the bank, there was the deposit shrinkage that was simply as a result of Silicon Valley financial conditions at the time, which is that there was no IPO window for a while there. And there was no new fundraising. Right. So you didn't have these these uh, startups and stuff did not have fresh cash coming in and they were in survival mode. And, you know, they're like spending down their money all the time. So there was this sort of like natural it was not a run. It had it wasn't even about the treasuries. It was not about the report on the Substack in January of that year. That's like uh, Bern Hobart, the author of the Diff uh, newsletter. Uh, he's like, by the way, uh, Silicon Valley Bank is insolvent. You guys should check this out. And like people like ignored it for about four weeks. Um, it was not about that. It was just about the fact that uh, the deposits were going down. 
Yeah. However, Joe, I really I remain reluctant to pay my bank a fee. I don't want to. <laughs> no, I I mean I don't I I like having free banking and I like having free access to ATMs and the website and a nice app and stuff like that. But it does really make sense and sort of like crystallize this point, which is that that is the only submarket rate borrowing in the world, right? <laughs> like basically for the banks. And there's a reason that they can get submarket rate because they also throw in this service for you. But, you know, there was like that chart we had at, at our recent Odd Lots trivia night that Josh Younger showed, which mm. was like the Fed funds rate. And then is like, what is this rate below it? And there really is only one rate in the world that's going to ever yeah. like be below the Fed funds rate. And that's like the special rate that banks can borrow at from their own customers. Deposits. Yeah. yeah. You did mention, I think, earlier in the intro that around this time last year, so in addition to the Bill Nelson on the discount yeah. window episode that we did in January, I think in February, probably, yeah. we spoke to uh, Joe Abate over at Barclays about exactly this issue. So deposit rates, uh, the beta to yeah. um, benchmark interest rates. So, Yeah. I think we're pretty on the ball. We're pretty on the ball. And that uh, talking uh, with Stephen, that like that put a bunch of things yeah. together, like a lot of like light bulbs went up. It's like, oh, I get why this is the case or I get why that's not really an ultimate fix, et cetera. So I really enjoyed that conversation. OK, on that self-congratulatory And note, the flubs. That's a good flubs. one. I'm going to start calling it that. That's so much easier to say than FHLBs. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Stephen Kelly, at Stephen Kelly 49 Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin, Dashiell Bennett, at Dashbot, and Kale Brooks, at Kale Brooks. Thank you to our producer, Moses Andam. For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts. We have a blog and a weekly newsletter that Tracy and I write. And uh, you can talk about all of these topics with fellow listeners 24-7 in the Discord, discord.gg slash And if you enjoy Odd Lots, if you like it when we do deep dives on emergency lending facilities for banks, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, if you are a Bloomberg subscriber, you can listen to all of our episodes absolutely ad-free. All you need to do is connect your Bloomberg account to Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.